Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As we began 1 Corinthians 4 two weeks ago, we realized that the whole chapter is about how the Corinthians should think of their Christian leaders. The first verse of chapter 4 begins with, this is how one should regard us, meaning him as an apostle and the other Christian leaders that God has provided them. Paul had to write this way to these people because they were so divided and arrogant that the very life of their church was threatened. And Paul knows, even though he wasn't there anymore, that he personally was on the receiving end of many disparaging comments by the factious Corinthians who were stirring up so much trouble. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, he writes, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account, or as the Christian Standard Bible says, despicable. There are references throughout his Corinthian letters which indicate that Paul was among those leaders about whom many of the people had been gossiping and judging. These worldly selfish attitudes not only had to be identified and addressed, which he did in the first three chapters of this letter, but they also had to be replaced, replaced with proper attitudes, which Paul is explaining here in chapter 4. And Paul does this in his unique and, and interesting style by explaining what Christian leadership actually means. And he hopes that once these people see how God has designed his church, the bride of Christ, to function, that they will again return their eyes to look upon their God and will see their arrogant self-focus and how much it's blinded them to Christ's actual purposes and brought disrepute upon Christ himself. And we also need to notice that Paul really doesn't spend a lot of time doing this right here in chapter 4. He spells all this out in only 21 verses. And he then goes directly into dealing with the most defiling and visible sin amongst this whole church in chapter 5. And throughout all of it, he speaks authoritatively as Christ's apostle, letting them know the source of his instruction is from the head of the church, who's not pleased at all with their attitudes and behavior. Now, in part one of this chapter, verses 1 through 7, Paul reminded them that Christian leaders, as servants of Christ, have been entrusted with the mysteries of God. Christian leadership is not a popularity contest. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says that Christian leadership is a God-given gift which demands that leaders recognize two basic responsibilities. And he lists them here. First, that they are first and foremost the servants of Christ 
as they serve his church. And second, that their main responsibility is delivering the gospel of Christ in all its glory and grace to the people of God. And they do this as God's stewards for the people's good and God's glory. The requirement for Christian leaders doing all this is faithfulness. Faithfulness in fulfilling their responsibility as God's stewards. The Corinthians are warned in verses 6 and 7 not to go beyond what is written and not to be puffed up in favor of one leader against the other. Then their arrogance is exposed by Paul with three, what one commentator has called, blistering rhetorical questions. And that's really true. Here they are. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Now, following that up in verses 8 through 13, he himself writes with bitter, biting irony, and it helps these people hopefully see that part two of Christian leadership and what it means is living in light of the gospel. The leaders themselves should live in light of the gospel. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffered and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and, and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, the way Paul gets across his point here about how Christian leaders should live their own lives is sort of convicting, isn't it? First, he comes at their arrogance in another way by using this irony. Are you already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Do you hear it? They are self-satisfied, 
comfortable, and proud. They don't need anything or anyone else. The point here is that they're living in a state state of self-inflicted delusion. They consider themselves as people who are successful in their church and their society. So they think they're much better than everyone else. But in reality, they're not spiritually rich and not seeking to lay up treasures in heaven, are they? Jesus' rebuke to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17 identifies this very same issue. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You can't get much more blunt. And Paul is saying exactly the same thing to them. The last part of verse 8, Paul gives even more insight. He says, without us, you've become kings. They saw themselves as already ruling in God's kingdom instead of as citizens of God's kingdom on the earth here and now. And then in the last part of verse 8, And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So dripping with even more irony, Paul says he wishes that God's final eternal kingdom had appeared and that the Corinthian believers would then really be ruling with Christ. Because if that's so, then he and Apollos would also be there with them. Paul's saying this, should let them know that they have gone way too far in misguided thinking. Why? Because the Apostle Paul and Apollos and their other associates are still waiting for God's kingdom to be realized. Christ has not returned yet. So the eternal kingdom is not yet realized. Now, we should all realize that this particular problem is not as far-fetched as it first looks. Because historically, Christians have often failed to see their present on-the-earth condition in proper perspective with their future hope. Like the Corinthians, present reality can become very warped when selfishness rules and asserts itself, especially when the scriptures are not carefully taught and thought through and applied. That, of course, is a recipe for disaster. Now, we need to recognize some things here. In times of distress or war or major societal disruption, it's very common for shallow Christians to cry out that it's the end. It's right around the corner. Now is the time. And they forget that Jesus plainly taught that no one knows the exact time, day, or hour. 
Many times in the history of the church, Christians have thought that the world's circumstances or their own dire circumstances surely meant that Jesus' return is now. Can you think of any? If not, you didn't pay attention during your history courses. Has it happened often? So what do they do? They quit their jobs and sell their stuff and put all their hopes in Jesus relieving them now of all their distress. And what does that do? It brings all sorts, all sorts of heartache and misery to everyone else who feel that they have to support the ones who've already quit doing anything while they're waiting. Marty and I used to live in Bernie, down in central Texas. And just north of Bernie is a little town called Fredericksburg. And just north of Fredericksburg is this rock. Some of you may have been there. It's called Enchanted Rock. Native Americans used to gather there early on and do what they did. While we were living there, it looked dire. Savings and loans went under. Any of you old enough to remember those years? The world is a mess. On and on and on and on and on. And yes, there were a group that went out to Enchanted Rock to wait for what they said was the return of Christ. Needless to say, They weren't there very long before they realized that somehow their charts and conclusions had missed the point. This is not uncommon. Another extreme response to things being so bad that Jesus must be coming now is missing out on or minimizing all the privileges and joy that are ours in Christ. He has to come now. So why hope and grow and rest in his peace and fellowship anymore? Or have joy about anything? Because life is hell on earth for now. You know any people like that? Hopefully there are none here. Now on the other hand... In times of prosperity or stability, what will shallow Christians tend to do then? It's very tempting to adopt some form of present-day triumphalism, teaching and believing that believers should all live as the children of God who are supposed to receive most of their eternal inheritance right now. All the promises are applicable right now. All the promised blessings are ours to claim right now. Know any people like that? As you can guess, this one is a lot more popular than the other one. There are so many churches that are wired this way. In other words, Jesus hasn't returned yet, 
But he wants all of his children to experience the fulfillment of all of his promises and inheritance now while we're still on the earth. Now, how can that happen? By very sloppy application of the promises pertaining specifically to what life will be like after Christ comes again. In other words, you read all the wonderful promises and blessings and you say, look, it says it right here. I don't have that. God, I claim it right now. I bet most of us have at least some friends that break our hearts because that's the way they operate day in and day out. Doesn't mean God doesn't encourage and alleviate, but it's when he sees fit. Example is Christians rightfully look forward to some degree of reigning with Christ. We should. We don't look ahead enough, I think, frankly. Because if we did, it would help our attitudes a whole lot. And I'm speaking from the view of a person who is wired basically to look at everything as half empty. The Corinthians felt that they were doing so well, even with all the stuff going on in their church. See, that's what's really remarkable. They're incredibly blind. That they read those promises back into their present circumstances and began thinking that they had already begun to reign. And as Paul wrote, Ironically, without us, the apostles, the guys that were supposed to be the founders of the church as Christ went back to heaven. Now, going beyond Scripture to a place in which they think they've already arrived at some spiritually elite positions is always a very dangerous place to be. And the fact that their divisive factions are tearing the church apart has not seemed to get their attention either. It should also wake them up, shouldn't it? But it hasn't. They are so enamored with themselves that they see everyone else as the problem and are completely blind to their own selfishness and arrogant pride. So Paul continues here in verses 9 and 10 with the reality of the conditions of Christ's appointed apostles. And this is hard for us to read. And this is contrasted with the realities of the triumphalist nonsense of the Corinthians in their selfishness and pride. So we should see this huge difference here. In fact, you'd have to be blind not to see it, right? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now many think that what Paul has in mind here, and I think they're right. 
is when the Roman legions returned to Rome after a triumphant campaign, of which most were, the spectacle of them marching through the capital was one of the greatest sources of pride for all Roman citizens. Are you familiar with what that looked like? Leading the procession were all the senior military leaders decked out in their best. Leading their soldiers, the Roman legions, usually in descending order of rank. And we're talking a lot of men here. Marching through the streets of Rome. And then came the defeated prisoners and the slaves, literally almost dragged behind them. And they were on display. You see Paul saying the same thing? And many of these men would end up in the arena, also in Rome, dying at the hands of gladiators or thrown before wild animals. Why? All for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. And this is most probably what Paul is referring to when he writes, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We almost need to stop and take a breath and swallow with that picture because that is so foreign to anything we know or experience or think about. Then in verse 10, Paul reminds them of how he started this letter. What does he do? He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. How can Paul say he and the apostles are fools for Christ and weak and held in disrepute? What is that? Do you remember because they have committed themselves to the cross of Christ, which the world views as complete foolishness and a show of weakness and completely dishonorable. If you're going to die, that is the most dishonorable and shameful way for someone to die. And you're calling him God? You're worshiping him? Look at him. Look what happened to him. So they are looked at as fools by the world. That's what he was talking about. And in contrast, the only honor the Corinthians have received is what? Self-adulation. And probably some pats on the back from the same world that these believers' affections supposedly had left. Now, we can relate to some of this. How? 
The people that think they're really it in our world are always put on display and honored by whom? Their own groups. And some of us actually watch that stuff. Why shouldn't a celebrity be the voice of authority in everything that matters in life? Because they're the ones that are fools. But we are targeted because we say that we believe in a Redeemer who died on a cross. So what picture does Paul give them then of true Christian leadership and what it may entail? Verses 11 into 12. So the present, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. What did Paul mean by that last phrase? He was a tent maker. Highly respected job in that day? Enough. But what was Paul's background? He had the equivalency of probably five to ten PhDs. Yet he humbled himself to serve God in founding churches and many times he would not even ask the people to support him although he had that right in order to make even more of a difference before them in their lives. And he worked with his hands. That's why he put this in there. All the apostles were not that well educated. But he's writing this letter, and it's in here. In other words, Paul and the other apostles are still suffering and laboring. You notice that? The first phrase, to the present hour. What is that getting across? Christ has not returned. The kingdom has not been realized. We're in the kingdom of God, but as far as it realized and seen and established before the whole universe, no, not yet. So he sticks that in there. Up to right now, we are in hunger and thirst, poorly dressed and buffeted, which is a crazy word. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. That's the sermon next week. Not next week, but when we get back here. We appreciate that help. It made us realize what's next. That word buffeted is translated in some translations as brutally treated. The key being brutally. This reality is right in front of these people he's writing to. 
But the Corinthians are ignoring it. And we see that in verse 12 and 13, the rest of verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And those words are a little more graphic than scum and refuse. Is Paul griping? Not at all. This is the present reality of Christ's apostles, as Paul wrote, what their itinerant ministry looked like. The apostles were reviled. They were persecuted. They were slandered like the scum of the world. They were garbage in the world's eyes. Yet how did the apostles respond? By blessing others, enduring, entreating in the face of slander. In other words, they knew who they belonged to. The perfect God in human flesh who actually died on a cross, treated like garbage, like a criminal. And yet he was the only sinless man that has ever lived. They were living in light of the gospel of Christ. What does leadership mean? It means leaders who live in light of the gospel of Christ. Everything that the world despised and evidently the Corinthians also despised was what the apostles embraced for themselves. The apostles who were the recognized leaders of the church, appointed to that unique office by Christ himself. Paul understood that every Christian was not specifically called to suffer the same degree as the apostles. Maybe some were or will be, but not everyone However, he did want the Corinthians to see and hear and understand that every Christian should embrace a way of looking at life, otherwise known as world view, that the apostles demonstrated in and through their lives, which was a reflection of whose life? Of Christ himself. Y'all familiar with the letter to the Philippians? You know the joyful church? That didn't have any real rebuke to it? Not to the degree of any other churches. Paul tells them in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 1 this. Just listen. For it has been granted to you. When you first hear that, what do you think? Oh, wow, I'm getting something from the the one I serve, the one I love, the one who gave his life for me. This is a privilege. Everybody got that? Okay, let's read the rest of it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is he saying? He's saying if you are the real thing, that your life will be lived in such a way that even in suffering, you will point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially if your suffering is because you stood up for him. Because there is a difference between being stupid and being and having to go through suffering and standing up for Christ in, a, in the right way and having to suffer. D.A. Carson sums up what this way of looking at life implies with three major points that are here. First, we follow a crucified Messiah. The message of Christ crucified cannot be effectively communicated from the haughty position of the triumphalist's possessive condescension. Everybody reacts to that attitude, except the person who has it. You know what I'm talking about. Looking down on others. I've got it, you don't. There will never be a time when we will not take up our cross, for those of you who are wondering. This is a daily activity. It's a daily attitude. We must die to self-interest daily and follow Christ. The less that any society knows of that way, the more foolish we will seem and the more suffering we will endure. And folks, we already have more examples than we care to share. Of Christians all across our country who are being persecuted Driven, driven to court, dragged to court because of their stand that most of the time we've seen has been legitimate. And they've been called every name in the book and we kind of want to hide in the background. Because it's not pleasant to be called a fool and laughed at. Let me read you a quote. Carson says this about this. And he wrote this in 93. Hey, he he was late on the scene. There was people saying these things way before 93 of what was coming. He says, so be it. There is no other way of following Jesus. I love that. It's so short cuts through all the mess right to the point. Second, leaders in the church suffer the most. Before you react negatively to that and point fingers somewhere up front, listen, Christian leaders are not like most generals in the military who stay behind the lines. They are the assault troops, the frontline people who lead by example as much as by word. 
And we read a letter from a whole list of Chinese ministers months ago who were being dragged, the churches and their, and their leaders were being dragged before the authorities for just proclaiming Christ. Do you remember that? And those guys were the ones who were being dragged in. And we will see more and more of that everywhere, even here. To praise a form of leadership that despises suffering is therefore a denial of the faith. A denial of the faith. Third, all Christians are called to this vision of life and discipleship. In just three more verses, verses 16 and 17, Paul is about to say, I urge you be imitators of me. That, that, that request takes on a little heavier meaning now that we know what that's talking about, true? He says, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. There you see it again. As I teach them, where? Just to the elite, the stronger The churches that have been around a while? No, he says, as I teach them everywhere in the church. We must frankly recognize that this stance is alien to much of our experience in the Western world. And as I said, Carson wrote this in 93. He he also said, until fairly recently, even the unconverted in the West largely adhered to Judeo-Christian values. However, that consensus is eroding rapidly. As it does, there will be more and more overt opposition to any form of Christianity that tries to maintain allegiance to the Bible. Not covert, that's undercover in darkness, but overt opposition. In other words, normal. Will we embrace it? Another reason why Paul says what Paul says seems alien to us is because honestly we have unwittingly become more like the Corinthian Christians than biblical in many, many ways. Many of us are well-to-do and comfortable, nothing wrong with that, but with little incentive to live in a vibrant anticipation of Christ's return. And our desire for the approval of the world often outstrips our desire for Jesus' well done on the last day. That cuts right to our hearts, does it not? If you want a really hard exercise, make a list of what kind of approval you really crave from the world. We want to prepare our kids to be able to leave home and thrive wherever they are. And that is so good. But we must step it up. To what? We also must embrace the responsibility as parents and as their church of these children to prepare them spiritually to stand in Christ and for Christ no matter what may come. Because what they're going to face 
even early on, is so far beyond what anybody my age has ever faced. And we've got to be real about this and be willing to work on it and talk about it without fear and running away. And the bottom line is, in order to do that well, we must model it ourselves. You can't go in and tell your kid, hey, stand up for Christ in your class. This is going on or that's going on. You tried to get a job and they wouldn't let, you know, the whole litany if we don't model it. Therefore, it should become a family operation. An operation that everybody in the family of the church can help participate in. If we are to change and be aligned to the gospel instead of betraying it, we've got to recognize where we are and we must go to the cross in repentance and contrition and a renewed desire not only to make the gospel of the crucified Messiah central in all of our preaching and teaching, but in the lives, our lives, and the lives of the leaders. It must be real. This was one of the main subjects of the men's Bible study this morning in an overview of the letters that John wrote. Knowing and living it. Because what you know up here is not really worth too much if it doesn't live out in our behavior. Quite a challenge. It's nothing new. This is what Christians have faced down through history. God put us here at this time. It wasn't an accident. He's raising up you and me and leaders and young ones on purpose to know him, to serve him, to stand up for him. And praise God, we can walk through the coming years enjoying him, bringing glory to Christ by our lives and doing it together. There's no greater joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you humbled, uh, maybe fearful, and we take all of that to you because you are on your throne and your name is more important than anything in the world that we live in, including ourselves. And we pray that you would so continue to work in our hearts to bring us to be able to pray and ask you and proclaim what the psalmist did in Psalm 73, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction?
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Happy Father's Day. There's a little probably weightier than what you came in thinking Father's Day would be, but we have a great, great, great responsibility. Dismissed.